Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Last uh, week, we introduced this uh, book of Ecclesiastes, and if perchance, and some of you were not here, you might want to pick up the CD or be able to download that. All the messages are on podcast. You can find those, and uh, you might want to get that so that uh, you're not behind. You may want to pick, we made a few extra for this week per request that you might be able to give those out to others as well. Well, we want to uh, present the argument of the book and try to understand it, illustrate it, and apply it to our hearts and lives. This book that, I, in my estimation, is one of the most difficult books of the Bible to rightfully understand. I've never gone through a complete series of it in all my 29 years of, of uh, teaching and ministry until this uh, very day. It's, it's taken me years before I could really wrap my arms around it and get the message of it, but now the Lord has allowed me to see it with uh, 2020, and I hope that God will use that to encourage you, to teach you, to instruct you, and that you might pass the words on of, of the sacred text unto those whom you love and, uh, and live among. I've entitled the message today, How Are We to Find Any Meaning in Life? How Are We? It's a how-to type sermon title. How are we to find any meaning in life? For life does seem to be so futile, vain, meaningless. When you look out through the windows of your eyeballs and look at what is in this world, and the things that we see, uh, it seems without any meaning whatsoever. Some of you are old enough, like I am, to remember uh, Bob Dylan, and he's still strumming away. But I, I remember those days in the 60s, yeah, that's a long time ago for those, some of you who are younger, uh, but uh, his song with the guitar and the harmonica blowing away, and uh, some of those songs are forever in my head and heart. Uh, one of those songs uh, that he sang that I remember when I was way, way young was uh, Blowing in the Wind. You remember that? How many of you remember that? It'd be kind of good to look at that. How many of you remember some of the great hymns? Three or four of us. Well, we all know Dylan, you know. <laughs> Bob Dylan's song, Blowing in the Wind, it points out the mystery, the mystery of life as we know it. He sings, the answer is blowing in the wind. And by that he means, he means that life's meaning is unknowable. It's unknowable and it's beyond us. Let me recite the lyrics of that. Please don't anyone sing. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? Yes, and how many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Yes, and how many times must the cannonballs fly before they are forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Second stanza, how many times must a man look up before he can see the sky? Yes, and how many ears must one man have 
before he can hear people cry. Yes, and how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. How many years can a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? Yes, and how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head pretending he just doesn't see? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. To Dylan, these uh, things of life and the semi-war protest song uh, really saying it's a mystery. It's blowing in the wind. We'll never know it, and it's unknowable. It's almost a complete existential statement of meaninglessness. I hate to ruin your day if you didn't realize that's what he was singing. You say, well, I like the tune, you know. <laughs> that's what he's saying. It's unknowable. It's in the wind. Well, that's uh, what Solomon is dealing with in this book that deals with life under the sun. He means life as you and I look at it through our eyeballs. When we look out through life and experience through our five senses, it doesn't make sense. It seems upside down. And uh, a man or woman can never find the greater issues of life, the great answers to the questions that each one of us pursue. And so I ask the question, where do you look for meaning and purpose? If the answer is blowing in the wind, where is it that you are, 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 are in, in, in search and in discovery to discover the purpose of why God made you and with your abilities and talents and opportunities at this point in time? Why is it that you exist? And why do I exist? Well, many... Many people, I'm reminded, make a mad pursuit of one thing after another. Education is often thought to be the answer. Modern-day educational uh, experts, you know what an expert is? Somebody 50 miles from home. Because the hometown crowd says, oh, that's Billy. He doesn't know anything. But he's got a Ph.D., so people listen to him. Or it's a drip under pressure expert. The experts say, you know, get an education. I'm not certainly against an education. I'm not against education. I spent a lot of years uh, trying to, to obtain one, and so did many of you. I'm here to tell you that all the academic halls and all the lecture studies and libraries will never yield the answers that you're seeking in this quest of why am I here? Never will. History can tell us what happened. Science uh, can tell us the wherefores, but none of them will tell us why. Why? None of them. It's not an education. We said last week, uh, going to seminary, uh, you hope to find the great books that will teach the reasons as to why do we exist. We said the reality is those books have never been written. And the reality is, they'll never be written. Never. It's not an education. 
It's not in success. Well, if I just get successful. I'm climbing and climbing and climbing the ladder. If I just reach the top rung, I'll make it. And then it'll all come together for me. I'm here to say impossible. Just do a study of so-called ones who have made it to the top rung and the devastation that they've made of their lives and the lives of others. It never deeply satisfies the quest for understanding as to who am I and what am I to be doing and where am I going and what's it all about, the great issues of life. That never yields that answer, never. Some think, well, you know, if I just get a spouse, if I get married, that'll be it. My problems are over. I got news for you. See me after the service. That doesn't yield, as, as wonderful as it may be, it does not yield what we're looking for in this quest for meaning and purpose. Nor does money. Say, so, well, if I just get more money, that'll do it. And uh, we, we know that that's not true. Many, many folks that have great resources are some of the most unhappy, cantankerous, miserable people you'd ever want to meet. That's not it. That's not it. Now, the world doesn't believe that. The world runs after that, but that is not it. You have to have enough to live indoors, eat, care for yourself, and all that, or you've got other problems, but you pile it up as big as Mount Everest, and that doesn't mean the end of the day, wow, I finally reached the zenith of satisfaction. The two are not even in the same equation. Don't be confused by that. How about a career? Some think, well, if I just, I'm in the wrong career, if I just change, I'll have deep satisfaction. Well, God made you with gifts and abilities, and you ought to find out where that is and what you ought to be doing with that. But if you think at the end of the day, that's the thing that's going to make it for you, you're going to be sadly disillusioned. I've had the privilege as pastor talking to many, many folks who have spent many years in certain careers and works, and they, they can't wait till they're done. They wonder if they made a mistake, and it didn't satisfy like they were thinking it would. And oh my, it, it's not in that. Even when you work along with the gifts and abilities, that is not what provides deep satisfaction and meaning in life. Impossible. Or finally, things. Things, material, stuff. Stuff. We run after this thing. We think if we get it, that'll just make it for us. Don't you learn that early on? It's the way it, way it, I used to save up and, and wait for a, you know, I'd buy, I, as a hobby of ca cameras, and wait up and save up, and then I'll go buy a camera, and I just, oh, I can't wait, you know. Started when I was a boy, I got a Mickey Mantle baseball bat. It was white, oh, it was a beautiful thing. 33 inch, I don't know why my father recommended that. I could hardly swing it for years. It was so big. But I thought, man, oh man, then a baseball glove, then cleats. Then just one thing after another, and at the end of the day, like, hmm, eh, eh, you throw it in a corner with everything else. Same thing, you know, and we get big and our toys get more expensive, right? And we think, like, I just can't wait. And, hey, tomorrow I've got to get it, you know? Eh, after a bit, eh, you know, you're like, eh, what is it, junk, junk? And then we put it in the classifieds, and other people think our junk's more valuable than what we do. We just about, you know. Get rid of it. It's never in things. What is it? 
What is it to a man if he gains the whole world, Jesus said. Gains the, that's a lot of stuff. And yet loses his own soul. It's not in things. Have you discovered that yet? You better. Or are you going to be running around in this rat race like gerbils on that little circular thing, thinking, that's it, I'm going to get there. i got news for you. It's going, to be, it's going to leave a great sense of hallowed lack of satisfaction in your heart and life. It's not things. Never is it. Never. Well, all these things are often sought after in hopes of giving meaning and purpose to life. Solomon begins his examination as we know life under the sun, and he tells us his theme in verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, all is utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Habel, 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 the Hebrew word for breath. It's meaningless. Could anything be more meaningless than an exhaled breath of air from your lips? It's empty, it's void, it's without any content, no satisfaction. That's his theme of this book. Men and women keep reaching for meaning and purpose, but will never grasp it under the sun. Never. But there must be more, you say. There must be more to life. There must be rhyme and reason. Life in itself appears to be empty, but there must be more. Well, in chapters 1 and 2, Solomon almost introduces us to the, to the body of his message. That's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to quickly make three observations by Solomon reminding us that we will never find meaning, here's the key, apart from God. Never, never, never. You were never made that way. That's why it doesn't fit. It's like a square puzzle piece into a round hole. It doesn't fit. Learn this once and for all. It doesn't work. While the rat race is running that way fast, and it's filled with crowds and throngs of people, don't be confused. It's the wrong race. It'll never satisfy. Come to grips with this. Meaning is found only in the Lord. For life not centered on God is purposeless and meaningless. Without him, nothing else can satisfy. I mean, you look at life, you get up in the morning, you work all day, you, you eat so you can work, and, and so on, and then you come home, you go to bed in short, sleep to get rest, get up and work. Same thing, over and over and over and over and over again. Makes no sense if you're only looking at here and now. No sense whatsoever. With ultimate meaning and purpose. Nothing will deeply satisfy. It passes here and gone. Well, to examine this, and that's what uh, Solomon is going to do, he says in verse 3, What does man gain from all his labors at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains the same. We're going to see in verses 4 through 11, the first observation he makes is that we'll never be able to discover life's meaning from nature. That's from the creation as you and I look at it. For nature seems machine-like and permanent while we come and go. We are so utterly transient. This leads to a deep sense of restlessness in our souls. Nature, he's going to begin in verse 4 and following to show us, seems to perform these endless cycles 
the monotony of the same thing every day and every month and every season just goes on and on and on and on without end. It's impersonal. It's the seasonal changes. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm longing this year more than ever for, for the warmth of uh, summer days to come. Or warm, I'll take warm spring days. I don't know why. I think sometimes these blood pressure pills I'm on, I'm I, I, colder than I used to be. I don't know what it is. I just wait for the, the warm sun to bask in it, right? And then we'll complain that it's not cool enough. You know how the, we are. I just can't. But it goes on and on and on. And, and the Lord has promised following Noah's flood that the seasons and the times of planting and harvest would go on until the end. And God is faithful to his word. And it continues. But when you and I look at the seasonal cha- changes and the calendar and all the rest, it just seems like one endless cycle. It's a merry-go-round. And the wheels on the bus go round and round and round and round. And, Mo- and, and Moses, Solomon sang, and you look at that all you want. You'll never figure out who you are by looking at that. You'll never figure out what your purpose for being when you look at April or you'll look at the summer days or look at the fall foliage and then the coldness. You'll never figure it out. You were never meant to figure it out from that. Never. Nature is impersonal. It's hard. It's finite. It's created. God keeps it in order, but you'll never get the message of who you are. And he's going to demonstrate that by noting uh, uh, the endless cycles, the same thing every day, in contrast to this endless cycle, this monotony, this, and yet there is the sense that it endures while we do not. For in contrast, we come, we live, and we die, and we go into the earth. The earth uh, swallows us up again. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and it just marches on. And we say that, don't we? Life marches on. Listen, do you know what people are going to do on the day of your funeral? I don't know if you ever thought about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're more, mostly around 11 in the morning or so. Around noon, people will come. They'll leave work. They'll come. Someone will cover their job. They'll come. They'll, they'll sit for the service. They'll shed a few tears. Maybe. Maybe. Someone else said maybe first. That's right, maybe, right? And uh, you know what they do after that? They'll go out to lunch. And they'll see some, some, some friends and family, and then they'll scurry back to work and relieve who was covering them. Then you know what they do at night when they go home? They eat dinner with their family. They'll watch a sitcom rerun and go to bed. And the next morning, they'll hardly remember your service. No, I've, if that makes you feel badly, I'm sorry. But that, I'm, t- I'm telling you, that's the way it is. And it marches on. The seasons come, the seasons go. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 4. But the earth remains forever. The earth, the four elements. The earth in verse 5, the sun. The sun rises and sets, hurries back to where it rises. Then the wind, the wind blows to the south, turns to the north. Round and round it goes. The wheel on the bus, okay? And 7, this, all the streams flow into the sea. Yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome or tiresome or restless, is the idea, more than one can say. The eye is, as never has enough of seeing, nor the ear of, of, of its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Nothing. Generations come, generations go, and the earth stands. Why should this be? Why is it this way? Why? When we were in uh, Qatar, we, Faithy and I went uh, out one day with Greg and Sarah uh, to the desert there. The land, it's a desert country, and uh, the winds sometimes whip right across the desert. And it reminded me of life. We walked across the desert, and uh, uh, Greg actually did a three-wheeler. They rented the little, what are they, four-wheel? Four-wheelers. You could go over the dunes and that. Some of the dunes, you didn't know what was over the edge, and some of them are pretty sharp drops. And as we walked through the dunes to see the camels and do a little camel ride, the wind blowing, you could almost look back, and the wind would blow such, and our footprints would all but disappear behind us. Not too far. You could see the trail, and then they would fill in with the sand that was blowing. And, you know, that's not a bad image of life. Because uh, as we walk through life, and then we go. We come, we live, we die, the earth swallows us up. And you look back, and it's almost as if we never were. The footprints are gone. They're covered. The wind has blown over them and filled them. And the other imagery of, of the beach, and I use this so often, it's like this when you think of loved ones, don't you? It's hard to believe when we think of Faithy's dad being in heaven since 99 and your mom, how many years? Five, four or five years? So it's like, it's like a dream. It's like a dream. Janice, I know you said your mom and dad, you know. It's, it's like a dream. It's being like down at the beach. You're all at the beach there. Don't you love going to the beach with the family and all that? And, and it'd be, it's like a great wave comes in and takes Grandma out, and she's gone. And you go like, how could that be? Grandma's here. Now she's gone. Where'd she go? Gone. You go like, wow. And it, and it just keeps going on. Life, the day-to-day -day cycle of life. And Solomon's saying, try as you will to try and get meaning and purpose in this quest for, for understanding of who you are from creation, and you'll never get it. Reach for it with all your might. It is beyond your grasp. That's what he's saying. It goes on and on. Why should this be? Why does the earth stand? It's impersonal. It's inanimate. And we are not. We're made in God's image. Wasn't man made in God's image? Yet he appears to be in a state of passing away. So short. Life is brief. And man, men and women are so transitory. Well, evolution is certainly embraced by much of our day, isn't it? I'm here to tell you it doesn't help. Evolution provides no, no ultimate help in any of this. Although men in the rejection of God and his word embrace it with a religious fervor because it gives them some sort of goofy sense of where he came from. I'm reminded of R.C. Sproul's words um, uh, in, his, uh, in his book entitled, Mark, what's the name of it? Not a... Not a chance. I knew you would know it. <laughs> Pastor forgot it for a minute. I, that wasn't a quiz. That was help. <laughs> Not a chance. That's right. Evolution, ultimately, what? It only dehumanizes man. It makes us less than man. Men and women made in God's wonderful holy image. And evolution sinks us down to the realm of animal-like, but even lower than that. I have on your sheet here, in regards to that, 
that in the explanation, where did life come from here on earth? Where did men and women come from? Where did man come from? Uh, it's commonly caught, taught that uh, you're nothing more than a cosmic accident. There you go. You wondered what you were. That's all that you are. A random byproduct of the universe. Shouldn't uh, ever happen. We've never found it anywhere else. But here you are. That's who you are. And uh, if, uh, if, uh, if you begin to wonder and you should ask the evolutionists, well, really, really, uh, who am I? I need to know at the end of the day. Here's evolution's answer. You are nothing. You are a zero. You're only material. There's no such thing as soul. There's no such thing as anything. There's no such thing as love. There's no such thing as personhood. In fact, uh, if you're if evolutionist and consistent, you would say that man's troubles are caused by the mistaken belief in such a thing as personhood. The thing that, that, that's really troubling you is that you have a sense of dignity and worth. That, that's the problem. You shouldn't have that. You're nothing more than cosmic stuff. and You're an accident. Not waiting to happen, you are the accident. And that's who you are. Well, it provides no help at all. None whatsoever. And we walk around beating within our chest as this yearning to want to know who we are. I'm lost. Where do I fit in? You know, your dog has never said that. He enjoys, he wags his tail, he likes his biscuit, he sits, he rolls over. He knows where he is. He's made and he's God's creature and he does it well. He doesn't long for in front of the fireplace wondering, who am I? I wonder what life will be in the future. He doesn't even worry about his next meal. Never. Any of that. Or what he's supposed to be doing. He does it. But you and I are made in God's image. And we have this haunting thought. There's so much more. Well, see, furthermore, nature's not kind, is it? In many parts of the world, have you noticed, Jim, you were over in Africa. Here it is. If you limp, you're lunch. Now, don't tell me that nature's benevolent. It's not kind. There's Grandpa the gazelle running out there, and the leopard spots him. And he's not as fast as he used to be. He's better than a quarter pounder. You've seen the race. It's a pathetic thing, and it ends, you know, Right. You limp your lunch. Nature is, is impersonal. It's not benevolent. It's not kind if you limp your lunch. Not only this, nature does not reward goodness, does it? There's no intuitive righteousness in nature. I mean, uh, if you're nice to people, it doesn't mean like it's going to be nice for you. Right? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. Nature doesn't reward you with that. It doesn't. Your house may fall in. You may get hit with a tornado. You, it may be a hurricane that, that uh, buffets you and destroys damage or maybe takes your life. It doesn't happen that way. Nature is impersonal, and it will finally consume you. Well, Solomon's point, indeed, if you look only at the world around us, you will never find meaning for life. Never. It was never designed by God to give us and unfold that insight for us. Never. 
Men and women do not possess anything within or outside of themselves to aid in securing this meaning and happiness and deep satisfaction in life. Well, at E, Solomon tells us that God has laid a heavy burden upon us. Look at, look at verse 12 and following. I, the teacher, Solomon, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. Now, that's the way it reads in the NIV. and the Hebrew, it says, uh, on the children of man is the would be a one-for-one one translation. On the children of man. A man, Adam, is Adam. On the children of Adam. He's referring to the sons and daughters that came forth from Adam, Adam and Eve. What a heavy burden God has laid upon us uh, in this world and in this life. And so he's referring to the fall. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 16, 17, 18 and 19 teaches of this. Look on the, uh, on the uh, screen. Uh, uh, remind us, to the, to the woman, that's Eve, uh, God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. I will produce, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Well, this is the heavy burden that God has laid upon us. This is what Solomon sees here as uh, sons and daughters who live in the aftermath of Adam's fall in Genesis 3. Well, just consider, number one, consider Adam, if you will. Can I remind you, he had no philosophical problems in the garden. Absolutely none. He was in touch with infinite reality. That is, the Lord God who would meet with him and talk with him in the cool of the day. He walked with God. He had absolute answers for creation. He knew of his dignity and worth and value. He knew the distinctiveness of his wife. He looked at Eve in all her radiant beauty and said, uh, she's like me, but she's different from me. And she knew her place in God's world. It wasn't a problem. He had no philosophical misunderstandings with that whatsoever. He understood the place of animals in the creation, that God had created them as lesser uh, of life that he was to care for. He had no misunderstanding on the cosmos, in the creation, the sun and the moon and the stars and all that. He had no problem with any of that. God had told him its meaning, its place in God's wonderful universe, you see. He, he knew these ultimate answers that Solomon is, is laying bare in this uh, book of Ecclesiastes. He knew why he was here. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was supposed to be doing. All of these things. Well, number two, when Adam sinned then, Genesis 3, when he took of the forbidden fruit and cast all of humanity into its fallen state, we would say the lights went out. All of a sudden it became dark. 
Faith and I were in a cave once. You ever go into those caves where deep down under and where the bats hang out? And that's not Batman, but the bat, real bats uh, and, and all that thing. We were in one one time in Bermuda. Remember that? We went down in there and they were standing. We're going to hit the lights here now and show you how, what real blackness is. I got to tell you, when they hit the lights, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. That was pitch black. The same thing happened when Adam sinned. The lights went out. In all these issues that Solomon is dealing with, the issues that all of us deal with, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? What are, what's it all about? It went pitch black. And we're stumbling around, grasping for things, hoping it gives the deepest satisfaction of our hearts. And none of it, none of it does. He says, it's meaningless. It's without any sort of, of, of purpose. It will never satisfy your heart nor mine. His awareness of his place and purpose vanished. His children, that's us, and we think we're still part of this machine-like world searching for meaning, and it's impossible. What he's saying in his first observation is that we'll never be able to discover life's meaning from nature, from the creation. It was never meant to yield that sort of instruction for us. It's impossible. It can't do it. A second observation he makes in verses 12 and following is, is that we'll never be deeply satisfied with life's pleasures on this and life under the sun in and of itself. For these will always leave us empty yearning for something more that will ultimately fulfill. They leave us hungering for more. They'll never satisfy. Any and all of life's pleasure, you won't come to the end of it and say, that's it. I've reached the Everest of life, and I'm forever content. Life in and of itself here on earth will never yield that, ever. You won't hear this message very many places. Madison Avenue advertisers, they're all cranked the other way. They, they're trying to get you to buy certain things, and your life won't be happy until you do this, that, or the other thing, purchase, buy, or go, and it will never yield it, ever. That's what Solomon is saying. He, he, he reminds us, A, uh, in verses 12 to 18, the first area that... He, he seeks in life's pleasure that of intellectualism. Solomon pursues knowledge, intellectualism, for the meaning of life. Look what he says in 12. I, I the teacher, was king over Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore wisdom and all that is done. And he goes on to say in verse 16, I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone else who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the, to the understanding of wisdom and also, and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow and much knowledge. Uh, the, the more knowledge, the more grief. Well, he studied philosophy and religion, history and science, medicine. He studied uh, mathematics and social science, and all the different disciplines of study. 
But none of them in Solomon's old words yielded the answers to life, and it never will. It's impossible. It never could. Man's wisdom cannot understand and explain life. Rather, the more one learns, the more grievous one becomes. We have those expressions in the popular life, don't we? Ignorance is bliss. I want to be happy, so I'm going to flunk out. Don't do it. Don't do it. Study, learn, grow. But the reality is, is the more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know. And today, because of to- total relativiz- uh, relativity and relativism in, uh, in the academy, the sign of a really educated man or woman is a man who, who doesn't know anything quite for sure. Thank you. You're brilliant. You're a Ph.D. And that's the mark of it. Uh, Because if you're somehow arrogant enough to say, I know this, maybe it's something the size of a postage stamp, uh, your colleagues will will denigrate you and and mock you. You Who are you that you think you know anything? Well, that's not true either. We can know true truth, though limited. God has given it to us. But the more you study and disciplines, you feel like you're putting your toes in the, the water of the ocean, and it's just mammoth out there, and you realize there is so much more that I couldn't even know, I didn't even think about, that I don't know whatsoever. And it's not in learning. It's not in the pleasure of that, and there is pleasure in that. I was talking to Jonathan yesterday on the phone. He said he's buried with all these projects. They're trying to write a Greek commentary in Romans, and he said he'd need to spend 25 hours researching and studying and getting it done. And in the midst of that, he was saying, I got this, and then I got that. These next four weeks are going to be crazy. And I said to him, you know, it's a great, think about it this way, it's a great privilege, it's a great honor to have this period of time in your life where you're not in the workaday world cycle, and you can step aside and you can give yourself to thought and to reading and to development. I mean, that's a great privilege. And sometimes you don't realize how great it is till you're on the other side and looking back at that and, uh, and so on. So uh, find joy in that, uh, in what you're learning, and, uh, and grow by that because these days are going to come to an end in a thud, and it'll be over as it is, and you'll be in the workaday world. Having said all that, all of man's wisdom, all of man's learning under the sun, apart from God, will only yield more grief. It will never satisfy. If it did, all the Ph.D. and department chairmen, would they be doing high fives? It would be like running at the beach with the slow music. We have found nirvana or something. Never happened. There's some of the greatest skeptics. I'm talking about ungodly, unwise brilliant in their areas. Carl Sagan, a number of years ago, had that series, The Cosmos. I mean, he, he was a pessimist, brilliant in his astral physics and all of that at Cornell University. But at the end of the day, deep melancholy and sadness in his life. I mean, he looked up and he said, ultimately and finally, the answers that we're talking about here today are found in the stars. No, I'm sorry. They're not in the stars. Now, he died a few years ago, and he has found out otherwise. They're not in the stars. 
Well, the second pleasure beast, uh, Solomon engaged in the pleasure-seeking, hedonism. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, but he found this wanting. We, we might say that he jump, jumped into the pig pen and lived it up to his tonsils in hedonistic, sensual sin. I thought in my heart, verse 1, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Even laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. It's wine, women, and song, if you will. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. Hedonism. Pleasure. He discovered that wealth and pleasure do not satisfy the human heart. They do not whatsoever. God was not, God has not made you. He's not made me to find our deepest satisfaction for life, meaning, and purpose in hedonistic, sensual pleasures. Now, God has given sensuality and pleasures, and these things are to be enjoyed, and some of these in marriage only, and that kind of thing. But in an end to themselves, never, they will never yield it. Never. And the world doesn't believe that at all. Don't you get sucked in on that. After it's all said and done, I remind you, you must wake up after having pursued pleasure and return to the real world where there's tears and heartbreak, sickness and death, disillusionment, disappointment. So Hugh Hefner and the Playboy philosophy is bankrupt. It's utterly bankrupt. It's an illusion. And at the end of the day, it yields nothing. Well, Solomon attempts to find in verses 4 through 11 the third area. That is in things or materialism. Uh, he tells us in verse 4, I undertook great projects, and he did. I built houses for myself. You know, he spent 14 years building his own house, seven years building the temple for the Lord. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. I planted fruit trees, beautiful things. I brought, verse 7, male and female slaves and other slaves who were born to my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and providences. I acquired men and women singers, music and aesthetics and, and a harem, sexual uh, uh, lasciviousness, if you will, and as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And yet in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. As he did it, he stepped aside and he made his notations in this inquiry as to the purpose of life under the sun apart from God. In verse 10, he summarized, I denied, my, my, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward of my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and all that I had given myself to achieve, it was meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Nothing whatsoever. He became wealthy. He built great buildings and projects. He had a harem, a music. He engaged in every conceivable pleasure. 
All of it, he says in his own words, ultimately was bankrupt in providing meaning and steepest satisfaction of one's heart. A number of years ago, there was a gentleman named Timothy Leary. Some of you will know that name. Uh, in the 60s, uh, he was an advocate for uh, all sorts of drug use, LSD and some of these things. Uh, there's a lot of drug use today that goes on, and it's not for the purpose of which he, uh, he purported its usage. He suggested that uh, we, we, ought to, uh, we ought to experiment with uh, drugs so that we might find through the expansion of our mind. You know, some of you remember that. That's a mind-blowing, expand-your-mind experience so that we can come to grips with the ultimate realities of life. I'm sad to say that uh, that also failed an utter uh, abysmal outcome as they finally gave it all up and stopped even in the pursuit of such a thing. And the pleasures and all that went with that drug activity, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Wow. People's experiences commonly never fill or satisfy them at all, and they leave us hungry for something more. Finally, the last section in verses 12 to 23, you can read that later, we don't have time now, but he deals all with death. He says in 17, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it was meaningless, it was chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had worked for under the sun. Why? Because I'm going to die. The wise men and the fool both die, and I leave it all to someone who comes after me. And I don't know if he's going to be wise or a fool. He may take all the things that I labored for all my, the years of my short life, and I leave it all. And he or she may lose it all in an instant, in an instant, in a moment. And what uh, then is the meaning of my life? It seems utterly without meaning and purpose. It seems, uh, on my outline, in, he tells that life seems so empty because death comes to wall. It strips us all of the fruit of our labors. It doesn't matter whether you are wise or a fool. The grave swallows everyone, and we leave it all behind. We are all headed toward a casket, in essence. And you will go, and all your stuff will stay. All your stuff will be distributed to others. Will they be fools or will they be wise? You cannot know for sure. And in short time, nobody will even remember your name. You will be a distant memory at a Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, remember? And some of the young ones around the table will say, no. Did you know you're, you, you are really a hyphen? Did you know that? You ever go to a cemetery? Born, hyphen, death. You're a hyphen. That'll do something for you on a down day. I am something. I'm a hyphen. I'm a hyphen. Is that all there is? Majoring in popular culture today by way of illustration there was a song that came out uh, when I was in high school. I'll never forget first time I heard it. Yeah, it, it was entitled, Is That All There Is? I mean, after you hear it, you want to go and jump off the Niagara Falls Bridge. Say, that's it. Uh, Peggy Lee sang this song, and uh, this song uh, actually was uh, 
was written by another man in a poem, and she took it and put it into uh, music. And uh, the disillusion, the, the disillusionment by Thomas Mann was the writer of it. And uh, one man writing about it uh, t- tells us, did you know what th- disillusionment is? It's not a miscarriage in small, unimportant matters, but the great and general disappointment which everything, all of life, has in store. He goes on to tell, as, uh, as a small boy, uh, his house caught on fire. He sat across the street and he watched it burn down thinking, is that all there is to a fire? Is that all? And ever since then, life has been a series of disappointments. All the great experiences have left him, this Thomas Mann, with a feeling that, is that all? Is that all there is? And in one day, he writes, death will come, and he expects it to be the last great disappointment. Is that all? Is that all there is? Well, in that mind, let me remind you of some of the lyrics of this song that Peggy Lee sang. I remember when I was a very little girl, she sings, Our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced me through the burning building out to the pavement. I stood there shivering in my pajamas and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, Is that all? Is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? Is that all there is, my friends? Then let's just keep dancing, break out the booze, and have a ball, if that's all there is. When I was 12, my father took me to the circus, the greatest show on earth, and there were clowns and elephants and dancing bears and a beautiful lady, and pink pink, uh, tights flew high above our heads. And as I sat there watching the marvelous spectacle, I had the feeling that something was missing. I didn't know what, but when it was over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a circus? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. Then I fell in love with the most wonderful boy in the world. We would take long walks by the river, just sit for hours gazing into each other's eyes. We were so very much in love. And one day he went away, and I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. And I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, no, not for me. I'm in no hurry for that final disappointment. For I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my, my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Is that all there is, my friends? Then let's just keep dancing. Break out the booze and dancing. Let's have a ball. That's all there is. Well, that expresses the sentiments of lost men and women in the world that you and I live in. When they deal with the reality of the questions that Solomon is raising here, as he looks at nature and it's bankrupt to provide any meaning and purpose, as he looks at the pleasures of learning, the pleasures of, of sensuality, 
the pleasures of things, they all come up bankrupt. Finally and quickly, the third observation, he provides the answer. We will only find life's meaning in our relationship with God. That's it. That's all. For without him, or for with him, all of life and all his other good gifts are to be gratefully received, used, and enjoyed. A. Solomon tells that the possession and the blessings and the goods of life are a gift of God. All good things must be received and understood as coming from the hand of God if you are to use them properly and joyfully. For without him, there's no finding of true enjoyment in life. That's what he says in verses 24 and 25 in this first refrain of which there are six in the book. A man can find nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, that's God, who can eat and find enjoyment. You realize that everything that you have, your breath and every gift and ability and talent and dime that God sends your way, the blessings of children and grandchildren, of opportunity, the the enjoyment of life, the table and all that's spread on before you, all of these things are God's gifts to us. And he wants us to enjoy them. And as we acknowledge him as the author of them and give him thanks and use them for his purpose and his glory, then and only then do we receive the satisfaction that God alone can give. For B, men definitely do not have within their ability their ability to extract enjoyment for life. Try as men and women will in their lost state apart from God. You will never find it. It's being on the treadmill of life and never reaching the end. It will never come your way. Never. That's what he's saying. Under the sun, it's meaningless. Life under the sun is in and of itself is empty. And finally, see verse 26, to find meaning for life, you must please God. That's what he says. To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. You must please find out what pleases the Lord. Well, Hebrews 11.6 tells us how it is that we do that. For without faith, it's impossible to please him. You must have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must be born again. And you must walk with him. If you know him and you get off the path, you walk towards the darkness, even though you may be redeemed. And things get funny, uh, uh, get fuzzy, insofar as purpose and place and meaning and satisfaction. And as you wander away, and that lies within each one of us, be wary of that. You'll be stumbling into the darkness, and you'll have no sense of rhyme or reason for life. Well, lesson for life, and we'll be done. Number one. Lesson number one. Life in itself is empty. If you strive to find meaning within it, you'll never grasp it. Never. You never will. It does not yield that sort of of information to us. Try as you will. Number two, as beautiful as creation is, and it certainly is, you can observe it forever, and it will not provide satisfaction for your soul. 
the opposite will actually take place. Day after day, season after season, you'll have the sense that it abides forever, but we but a moment. And it'll produce a deep sense of restlessness within you and frustration. Number three, stop trying to find satisfaction and meaning for your life in that which will never satisfy. Stop that. All of us attempt to do that at times and at various points in our life. Stop that. Get off that treadmill. It's not in any of these things. It's only in one place. Number four, God alone, not things, nor pleasures, nor learning, is the giver of satisfaction and joy in life. May the joy of the Lord be our strength in all that we do. He alone gives it. He helps you understand who you are and what you're doing and where you're going and how to use the gifts and abilities and resources He's given you. And the joy in their heart, it's of the Lord. Only He gives it. And number five and last, let me urge you, if you're here today, you too must please the Lord. You may not be saved. You must find what pleases the Lord. You must come confessing your sin Repent of that and receive Christ the Lord as your Savior. And you'll be cleansed of your sin and saved forever and become a part of the children of God. That's, that is how we are to find meaning and purpose in this life of ours that apart from God is so futile and so empty. May God help us to be the men and women we ought to be, to strive to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, like Peter on the water. Keep your eyes fixed on him, and all the rest of it will come into focus. But like Peter, when we take our eyes off the Lord and we're looking around at everything else, we go down. May that not be us. <laughs> 